Good morning. I'm Christy Martell, the coordinator of diversity with the Center for Student Engagement at Geneva College and a staff member of the CCO, which is a campus ministry organization. We would like to welcome you and any guests here to Convergence, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. A while ago, I was talking to our 14-year-old daughter, and we disagreed about something. She looked at me and said, okay, boomer. I said, whoa, girlfriend. First of all, I'm a Gen Xer. Second of all, that's funny. And I think it is funny. But the shadow side is that it can be dismissive and a way to end dialogue when there's disagreement. I'm biracial and grew up in a mostly white community, church, and school. Although I was raised in a conservative evangelical church that was loving and caring, I don't remember any sermons, teachings, or Bible studies that addressed issues of race or racial injustice. Many of you here are Generation Z. You're the most diverse generation our nation has ever seen. And I'm excited because you have the opportunity to have the courage to engage this conversation rather than be silent or dismissive. Our hope is that Convergence is a space where these conversations can take place, wherever you are on your journey and from whatever generation, where we can learn to listen and understand where we acknowledge and lament the realities of injustice that exist and embrace a biblical vision of restoration and reconciliation for all, even boomers. Our keynote speaker is Ken Weitzma, and we've had the blessing of having him on campus with us for a few days, and he's been wonderful as a speaker and spending time with our students and also some local pastors. I really appreciate his deep insight and his heart for God and for his people. He's a leader, innovator, and social entrepreneur. His work takes him around the world as a frequent international speaker on justice, theology, and leadership. Ken is the lead pastor of Village Church in Beaverton, Oregon, a multicultural community in Christ. He's also the founder of the Justice Conference, which has reached over 30,000 people across seven countries with a message on a theology of justice and God's call to give our lives away, and the founder of Kilns College, where he teaches courses on philosophy and justice. Ken's also the author of Pursuing Justice, Grand Paradox, Create Versus Copy, The Myth of Equality, and Redeeming How We Talk. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Tamara, and their four daughters. Let's welcome Ken Weitzma. How's everyone doing this morning? Am I on? Um, if I get distracted, it's because uh, from the West Coast, you don't have a view like this uh, of that tree cover. So um, behind you uh, is, is this beauty of Pennsylvania, uh, and it's kind of fun to look at. I was in here yesterday just admiring it. So uh, if it gets any hotter than this uh, and I start to get sleepy, I might just, I might just look at the trees. But uh, hey, I want to thank Christy. I don't know where she went, but um, what she's done in putting a lot of details together and moving puzzle pieces around this campus uh, at Geneva and the heart that she's brought to some of the events in the last two days is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and so we always have the people that actually make things happen um, that, that nobody ever sees. And so I want to make sure I thank her and honor her. And, and then also Caleb, and I don't know where Caleb's at, but uh, Caleb and I interacting. Did you just point to him? He went through the door. But, um, but those of you that know, uh, that know Caleb at Geneva as a campus pastor, uh, somebody that's got an incredible heart, for students and for students to know Jesus more uh, and to follow him uh, wholeheartedly. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing to see the caliber of people that you guys have around here uh, and what's coming, coming to bear. So um, I'm going to jump right in. I'm proudest of uh, my four girls and, uh, and being here with you and not uh, with, with them back in Portland right now is because I care deeply about truth. Um, I care uh, deeply about the local church. If you cut me open, uh, I will bleed the local church. Uh, I was 22 when I got saved, and I was at Clemson University. Nobody knew where that was on the, the West Coast until about three years ago. Um, now a few people know, but I went to Clemson University, and when God got a hold of my life at age 22, uh, he showed me a vision that my life does not belong to, to me, and that my life as belonging to God is a part of um, God's vision for all of us being in his family, in community, uh, as the body of Christ, that there's something wonderfully beautiful 
about the collective. And I've grown up in the United States for most of my life, and we uh, are one of our claim, claims to fame in terms of American philosophical thought is individualism. Uh, it's, it's in the air we breathe. Uh, and so it was a real radical shift for me to begin, and I'm still learning uh, to see things a bit differently, how God really does love family, does love the body, uh, does love his creation, uh, and that we get to be a part of that in local churches. So uh, I um, grew up in the States, I said, but my dad's a Dutch immigrant, and so uh, he came to the United States when he was eight, uh, was born in 1944. He's a, a boomer. I, I guess we're doing generations here. Um, he's a boomer, but uh, he came to the States when he was eight. He had the, the whole on a boat from Europe past the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Ellis Island was already closed, so it was Hoboken, uh, New Jersey, right on the edge there, uh, where people were processed. He ended up on a train with uh, his family and $20 to their names, and they ended up in California. Uh, my dad joined the Navy so that he could pay for college and uh, and make a career. And so I grew up uh, living and kind of moving all over the place. And because my dad spoke Dutch and flew a plane uh, that they wanted to do a trade with, with the, the Dutch Royal Navy when there was such a thing, um, I went with my family at age three and lived in uh, the Netherlands from, from the time of three till six, six and a half. Uh, so all of my earliest childhood memories are European. It didn't occur to me until just a couple of years ago that kind of all of the bedrock is, uh, is Switzerland and France and the places we went. I spoke fluent Dutch. Um, think of a six-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, I was in Dutch school. I spoke fluent Dutch. Uh, but when I came back, my, my very typical Dutch immigrant dad uh, forbade me from speaking a word of Dutch uh, for fear that it would affect my English and I completely lost the language. So I might be one of the few people you know that, that once was bilingual um, and isn't anymore. So I have my dad to thank for that. But I want to uh, dive into some deep topics today. Again, uh, I'm here with you because of the passions I have, not with my daughters. And, and specifically today, we're talking about some big themes. We're talking about the gospel, uh, which, which comes out of the heart of God. The gospel is, is a script that, that is conceived in the mind of and, and is being architected by the author of that script. Uh, sometimes we think of the gospel as just this disconnected word and sacred uh, object that we put in a box, uh, but the gospel is the good news that is coming from God. Uh, God is the author of that, and we're, we're going to be talking about those things. Uh, justice and righteousness, we talked about a little bit yesterday, if you were here, uh, we'll talk about those words, but really we're going to be pushing into how those things barrel into uh, the subject of race and ethnicity this afternoon, looking at what that means for the church, uh, and not what it means programmatically in the year 2019 uh, in the United States for how we, we kind of uh, frame up our churches for church growth or for whatever the latest uh, trend is, but how, again, God is the author of the church, it being the body of Christ, uh, how he envisioned that to look in terms of multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, uh, cultural and, um, and, and incredibly diverse and beautiful. Um, so we're going to be together for a good bit of time today. We're going to do Q&A. And so I'm just kind of queuing you in. I don't normally get to do this with talks. You get 25 minutes or 30 minutes. You don't get to queue people in. Um, but I'm going to try and make you uncomfortable today. Um, because then it's, uh, then I know you're listening, and then I know you're wrestling, and then I know we're having a conversation. Um, I, I once was at a, a, a Christian college where uh, the president of the Christian college had forbade that the, the phrase white privilege would ever be used in an official capacity uh, or on a stage at that school. Uh, and I remember thinking that it was, it was one of the more tragic things I'd heard because whatever the argument's going to be about the phrase white privilege, to say at a Christian thinking institution uh, that we're going to rule phrases out um, de facto without even conversing about them shows that we have a higher commitment to some kind of ideology than to actual learning. Does that make sense? And if we're in a, a Christian thinking institution, Christians started Harvard. Christians started 
almost all of the schools in the United States, we are the ones that believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that when we wrestle and use our reason and, and scripture and right motivations, that we can actually arrive at, at, at more and more truth. Wasn't that what Luther said, right? Um, unless proven by scripture or right reason, I cannot go against my conscience. It wouldn't be wise or prudent. So, so this is where we should be able to wrestle with those ideas. It's the the tradition that we're in. So uh, I'm going to give myself the permission to just let phrases fly that normally uh, might be a uh, something that pricks you or, or shuts you down. But, but today we're here not to shut down or, or talk like we do at the Thanksgiving table. Uh, we're here to wrestle and actually move forward in conversations. Does that make sense? So um, I give you the permission to disagree if you can give me the permission to speak freely. Is that, is that fair? Okay. Um, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer if I can, and then uh, we'll jump into um, some slides. But Father, would you, would you do something um, miraculous? Would you claim this space? Would you, would you let this be a moment on the timeline? of our lives, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, just speak and move and, and blow through this place, through our hearts, through our minds, that it wouldn't be my words or my arguments, but that somehow in this conversation, in the wrestling, that you would bring us to a greater position of, of knowledge, of discernment, of wisdom, that we know those things ultimately come from you, so we, we surrender this time on a Saturday. We commit to, to engaging and, and trying to make it meaningful. And we desire, like the parable of the soils, that we would be receptive. That if you are going to speak to us, that we would let it go all the way down, that, that the seeds could get into the good soil of our hearts. That we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear. We commit these things to you, Father God. And, and we ask that, that, that with our little faith, um, you would take that and, and grow it and make it more. Um, we believe, help our unbelief. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I wrote a book called Myth of Equality. Uh, I was asked to write it and, uh, by InterVarsity Press. And uh, it was a desire to get somebody that loves history. History is my passion. Uh, I've never actually had a formal degree in history. And that's because I had a Dutch dad. He, he blackmailed me. Uh, when I went to college, he, he filled out what major uh, on my application and then told me if I ever transferred out of that major, um, all funding would, would cease. Uh, so I have a mechanical engineering degree that I've never used. Um, it's, uh, and I remember one thing from it, um, but uh, and that's just a different conversation. Uh, but then I went to seminary and, and got a, a degree in Bible and then a, a degree in philosophy. But if you really cut me open... Um, my greatest passion is history, and uh, IVP wanted somebody that loved history, that loved theology, that, that had been in the space of justice conversations, reconciliation conversations for a while, uh, that could, could write a reflection or a book on race in America that wouldn't be articulating a first-person experience of racism uh, or what race looks like to, to somebody that suffered under those systems or structures, but that would be a, a telling of, of, of a white evangelical voice uh, of, of what that scenario is, what privilege is, uh, and what it really looks like for dominant culture uh, individuals and certainly Christians to, to wrestle with and, and to try and come to a greater receptivity about growing in this conversation. Uh, so the original name of the book was just Privilege, um, and, uh, and IVP changed it to Myth of Equality. Uh, and I, I, I was taking it on as a labor of love, I think, for a while, and scared to do it. Um, it was, I was told by many people, even leaders of color, that it was a career killer, um, writing a book on privilege. And, uh, and I think I was just taking it on as a calling, as a burden, until I was sitting in a hotel in California uh, at a CCDA conference, and a friend of mine who was doing development work, African-American guy, he was uh, in Compton doing a church plant, um, and uh, I was going to be there, and so he reached out and said, can we get lunch, and I'd love to bring some of my co-pastors that I've got that are helping me with this church plant. 
um, would you be able to meet with us for lunch and talk to them a little bit about, um, about justice and race? I thought it was really strange because my friend um, has been deep for 20-something years in development work, uh, was, was shot in, in South Florida on doing some of this work, was back in, in California because he can't take humidity anymore because of what it does to uh, his wounds and, and where he had surgeries. And, uh, and so this guy leads it, knows it, cares about it. Um, it's his story growing up. And so I wondered why in the world he would want me talking to his staff. And so we were sitting at this lunch, large atrium. Um, if I stand down here, you guys can kind of see me. Yeah. Large atrium in this hotel. And we're having this lunch. And, and he's got these guys. They're fresh out of seminary. Uh, I think it was two or three white guys. And they're helping him do this church plant in Compton. And we're having this great lunch. Everyone's really into church. Everyone's into church planting. Everyone loves what's going on. And then one of, one of these kind of co-pastors, white guys, fresh out of seminary, um, starts talking about a relationship he has with, with a, a teenager, um, late teenager, early 20-something uh, guy in Compton, African-American guy. And he starts talking about this great relationship they had. And then his face turns, and he gets really frustrated, and, then, uh, and his voice carries this emotion. And he says, but we had this conversation um, a, a couple months ago. And, and this guy got really uh, intense with me, and he said, you will never understand. No matter how hard you try, you will never fully understand what I understand about race or, or what we're dealing with. And this, this white pastor um, looks at me and says, I'm just so um, sick and tired of that reverse racism. And I realized right then why my friend had wanted me to come talk with his staff. Um, it's not because I know anything that um, my friend doesn't know, but he needs somebody, he needed somebody like me to look at that guy and say, explain to me what you mean by that phrase reverse racism and how what this young man told you has anything to do with somehow offending you. And he, he looked... Uh, a little scared to be challenged, um, didn't really have many words, but I, I kept pressing in. And I said, what is untrue about what this young man said? And he goes, well, it's just not fair for him to say, because I'm white and, and he's black, that I'm never going to understand. And I said, if you were talking to a woman and she said, you're never going to fully understand what it's like to be a woman, is it fair for her to say that? That's her experience and it's different than you. Can we not say that, that someone else can't claim to have our first person felt experience. What is wrong with this statement? He goes, well, I just feel like that kind of thing comes at us and it's just because of the color of my skin and, and, it, and it makes me feel like I'm always going to be relegated to outside the circle. And I said, what makes you think that you always get to be in the circle? And let's, and let's talk about privilege because privilege is an assumption that, that things are always going to be centered around me. What makes you think that, that that's the case? And then I said, frankly, you're invoking of racism. There's nothing about this young man that says he hates you because of the color of your skin. And even if he disliked you because of the color of your skin, you've told me nothing uh, that would say that you have somehow been disadvantaged by the system economically, ju uh, judicially, uh, in terms of society standings, that there's nothing that, that you've articulated that because of the color of your skin, you've somehow been put in, in a place where, where you are disadvantaged. So even if I try to grant all of your emotion, you're, you're talking about racism in some abstract, loose way that isn't the way we, we normally talk about systemic racism, where, where there's, there's the disadvantaging of some people because of the color of their skin, and that that's a, a legitimate thing that has to be navigated in terms of society, and that that has been built over hundreds of years uh, in a culture that had a dominant group that were in power and, and were writing those laws ultimately to favor or advantage them. So in that conversation, um, it, it really struck home to me what it was I was trying to do or, or God might be calling me to do, and that's not to, to educate people that know better than me what racism feels like, um, how it comes, when it comes, what it looks like, but that as, a, as an evangelical leader to use what God has given me, education and 
um, in relationships, in different opportunities, to try to speak to an issue where we're log-jammed in terms of our understanding because we all have preconceived notions that pre uh, prevent us from really going deep into that conversation. So I want to try and make an argument that one of the reasons we don't talk well about this is that in the United States we have so uh, separated the gospel or the good news from touching the ground. We've, we've, we've been more Greek than we were Hebrew. Um, the Greeks have this, this split between good and bad and between spirit and matter. And spirit is good and matter is, is tainted or corrupt. And that's why early Gnosticism was basically saying Jesus must have been a little bit more like a ghost or an apparition that floated around. He couldn't have had flesh because flesh was corrupt. And so that's why John um, takes great pains to say we saw him in the flesh. We touched him. Um, but Greek wants the, the Greek thinking wants to split that. The, the Hebrew scriptures are a lot different. God looks down at the dust and he takes the dust and he, he makes us out of the dust. And he breathes life into that dust. Jesus takes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. Uh, that, that we're actually told that we're going to have a resurrection body on a new heaven and a new earth. That, that the vision of heaven is is not maybe this, this totally abstracted place um, that, that we've thought it is with, with little fat babies with wings flying around and, and, and glitter uh, kind of going everywhere. But, but we, have, we have fallen into that where the gospel for us has nothing to do with our neighbor. It doesn't touch the ground. It's just simply, uh, if I'm in a vacuum and at abstracting myself, uh, this, this thing or notion or idea of me as an individual with God experiencing this good news. Uh, we, we forget that the good news is good news for all. Um, that that the, the angels came to the shepherds and proclaimed and heralded, uh, heralded peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's, it's not you individually. It's not me individually. It's us as the people of God, as, as the object of His salvation, that together become a body, that together become a family, uh, and that that's very real. And um, here's a picture of Westminster Abbey. I kind of use a thought experiment on this. I was here two years ago with my wife and my, my third daughter. Uh, and this is kind of elevated because I, I didn't want the people in the picture. But it was full. Uh, and you could only get in at the back. And right after we got in, they, they cut it off. But there was an organ concert going on. Um, they were playing the, the Westminster Abbey organ. And, and kind of showcasing that to people. It was beautiful. Late afternoon, uh, the sun was coming through the windows. My daughter, who was 12 at the time, uh, you weren't supposed to sit in the standing room area only, but she was super exhausted, so she just sat uh, on the, the ground, crossed her legs, and sat down. And I looked over, and it was on Winston Churchill's gravestone. And I, I just thought it was really cute. Um, and uh, and here, here we were, and uh, I, was, I was experiencing it, and I want to give you just a little bit of, of the sound, if it works. It was very soft. Uh, I don't know that it's going to work. This, this is a video with the sound I recorded on my iPhone behind it. Is it the uh, volume on this thing? It's not my computer, so I don't know where volume is. If we can get the volume, great. If not, we can just move on. So the organ is inside. It's got the great pipes in it, and, and it's filling this building. And so... As you begin to slow down from uh, doing the tourist thing and all of the people, and you begin to take in this music that's all around you, and you start thinking through church history when they didn't have when they didn't have speakers and they didn't have technology and they didn't have electric guitars and and what was going on in these church services and how the organ kind of played into that and what was the sense that it gave you. And it really reminded me about the architecture of these churches. And so this is a Gothic-style church, and they found a way to build, instead of low ceilings and having it be dark and dim with incense, uh, there was a period of church history where they 
just yell at me if you think it'll play. Otherwise, I'll keep keep moving. If you don't think it'll play. Um, so in, as this music's going, you look at the extension of, of the church, the height of it, and what they did is really opened it up for this sense of the acoustics to come in, the light to come in uh, through these windows, and you get this idea of transcendence. So how did this happen? Uh, flying buttresses. So I walked out of the church. Uh, these are kind of the innovation that was created that, that you could create this structure alongside the walls so that they wouldn't fall in or fall out, that you could build up and, and hold that thing with integrity and allow you to go higher. These are the more famous ones. Obviously, Notre Dame, the ceiling, the roof burned uh, this past year, but the flying buttresses that that hold up the walls of that church, it's amazing, the architecture and, and how it's done. But it's it's this sense of transcendence that that in these church services with these organs, you're you're being reminded that God is big, God is sovereign, God is over all things, um, that nothing is missed on Him, that when we feel like asking, where are you, God? The answer is that He is there. God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. And so there's this sense of transcendence. And so I was, I was there listening to this organ and wrestling with this and going, yes, God is transcendent and, and he's holy. And wow, what does that look like? And I was thinking about Isaiah and Isaiah's visions and I was getting super geeky and spiritual and, and loving it, right? Um, we can get so much more spiritual when we're tourists. I mean, it's a real thing. Uh, a different environment, a different space, and you think about it differently. And then I walked out. And I turned around as I walked out. So this is the gates that um, Meghan Markle and Harry would have just walked through uh, to get married, where Queen Elizabeth would have walked through, if you're watching The Crown on Netflix, would have walked through to be uh, coronated. Right, right underneath, uh, underneath this are the doors that go into Westminster Abbey. And I walk out and turn around, wait for my daughter, and I see the statues. And all throughout Europe, you have cathedrals and and they date back to the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, and they all have statues. And so there's nothing strange about statues on a cathedral. Um, but these ones struck me as, as different. I didn't know what was going on. And I stared at it for a while, and I thought, I swear that looks like Martin Luther King Jr. I'm so confused right now, you know. And, uh, I, and I said, it's got to be. And, and I was really confused and so I went and found the little placard explaining what this is, and this dates back uh, several decades. But what you have here is the Wall of Martyrs. And the last name of Elizabeth on the far left, I think it's a woman who gave her life uh, overseas. Um, I, I forget which continent, so I'm not going to guess at it. Um, but she was a nun. And then you have King, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as a martyr pastor who was martyred um, for the work he was doing in the United States around race. Next to him you have uh, somebody from Latin America, El Salvador, uh, last name of Romero. Anyone know who that is? Oscar Romero. And Oscar Romero was a part of what became known as, as liberation theology, but it was basically going, the Bible was written by people from the margins to people on the margins. Think of the, the writers of Scripture. Moses, uh, who was a, a Hebrew, uh, taken into Pharaoh's house, but then exiled as a foreigner coming back. And his people as former slaves that are sojourners uh, in the world that get the law. Uh, if you go into the prophets, the prophets are writing when empires, Syrian and Babylonian empires, are having their way with, with the nation of Israel, uh, either going to captivity, coming back from captivity, when you look at the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament written primarily by Jewish authors using a foreign language, Greek language, because, because that whole area was conquered by Alexander the Great, and so, so Greek became the trade language, writing under the oppression of the Roman Empire where, uh, where torture and crucifixion was a way of, of keeping control and fear into conquered people. And the people they were writing to, the audiences that they were writing to, were, were Jewish people that were living under a regime, uh, or people on the margins that needed someone to speak to them because the religion of their day was, was going only to the powerful or the people you would expect to be at the center of society. 
not at all going to the poor uh, or the widows or the lame, the, the outcasts. And so all of Scripture, in some sense, was written from a voice that understood the pain um, of, of being from the bottom or from the edges and writing to an audience that's also familiar with that. And the liberation theology movement in Central America was speaking to a church, predominantly Catholic church there, that was dealing with incredible issues around land rights and around corruption. And Oscar Romero was a part of that in speaking truth to power. Uh, and Oscar Romero uh, was killed while giving communion during a church service. Um, there's a scripture that says, you have yet to shed blood for the gospel. Um, writing later in the New Testament. Uh, I, I felt sorry for myself when I was getting thrashed around on social media um, by, by white folk um, that uh, really hated that I was talking about uh, race and privilege. Um, I, uh, I felt sorry for myself when I felt like uh, you know, I was getting into difficult conversations that weren't maybe the conversations I would have chosen. We have not yet shed blood like Oscar Romero. Uh, or the prophets of old, in our quest to speak truth and to try and bring about justice and, and the gospel reality, the kingdom vision for all people, especially the people that need um, someone to, to stand alongside them so that that's fully realized. Uh, the person, the paralytic, that had nobody uh, to, to carry him and put him into the... To the the reflecting pool when the angels disturbed the water so that he could get healed. Imagine for years, for decades, nobody that, that's willing to move an individual that distance because they're all helping other people there, their relatives, their friends, and this person left by himself until Jesus comes and says, I'll help you. Prisoners that are incarcerated right now that, that live with the inability to get outside of those walls. And, and trying to find a way to redeem life and say, if I have the power of mind or if I can, can focus on faith enough, I can find meaning through correspondence or meaning through these little relationships that I have here to tune out the fact that there's a guard that stands there while I talk to relationships, to tune out the injustice of the system that might have brought me here. Like There's, there's a pain that, that's going on that that um, we often drive our cars in ways that we navigate around. Um, and Oscar Romero, in his role as a priest, as someone that cared, um, spoke to that. And then the last one, anyone know who that is? Can you see from where you're at? It's really strange to see it here. Bonhoeffer. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer on, on this wall. Meghan Markle walking underneath it, you know, to get married. Like, it's just this interesting picture of contrast. Bonhoeffer obviously lost his life, World War II, um, standing up for what he believed and trying to speak to um, not only the power, political power, but the Lutheran church that had married itself to the Nazis um, and then did a lot to try and help with the Jews who were being persecuted. So this wall all of a sudden jolted me from this, this kind of notion of transcendence. And real quickly... The other statues that ringed it were truth and justice and mercy and peace. So there was something so earthy, something so tangible, something so practical and real and honest about this wall right after coming out of this cathedral. And I went a little bit further down the, the sidewalk and I was, I was playing with this tension in my mind and there was a medallion built into the sidewalk and it was commemorating the jubilee anniversary of Queen Elizabeth. So, so I don't know which anniversary that was. She's, she's lived a long time. Um, but the Jubilee anniversary, uh, she had come through that, that way, and so they had taken and, and made a medallion and inlaid it into the concrete, and it was celebrating the Jubilee anniversary. And in that moment, there was something really deep and profound that happened for me because it married these two things with a biblical word and a biblical concept. That this abstract and transcendent that, that doesn't really touch the ground somehow touches the ground in a very real way in God's economy, the way God scripted this out, and it, and it did so with this concept of jubilee. So whether you know it or not, it's an Old Testament concept that on the 50th year, you're to uh, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. 
It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. So if I run into a hard time, something kills my crops and I need to borrow money, in that culture, there is no liquid money. So I would have to carve off a little piece of land. The next year I have less land to grow crops. And so as, as this cycle goes, there's a very real way that misfortune can carry me into losing uh, my family lands and my capacity uh, to be able to care for myself and my family. And there, it also does something else that God would never want. It would ultimately put me as a, a subject or a slave underneath a fellow Israelite, um, that I would be working indentured uh, for that person. And so God decrees that every so often, I want to hit the reset button, that the tribes go back to where the, where the tribes are, that the lands go back to the families that I wanted those lands with, and that, that people, again, have the dignity and the capacity to try and care and provide for themselves, for their, their families, that this is a good news um, decree that somehow allows society to not, over time, become more hierarchical and dysfunctional, where it puts people against one another, but that it allows it to be free and, and everyone to be able to enjoy what this looks like. This is the Jubilee. Now here's the really interesting and theologically mind-bending piece. Uh, the year of Jubilee starts on the Day of Atonement when the ram's horn is blown. Um, in fact, the word Jubilee comes from um, the, the word for that ram's horn. Uh, and as that ram's horn is blown, signifying atonement, forgiveness of sins, on that 50th year, then Jubilee begins. That there's something deeply, deeply connected to the forgiveness of our sins, to the setting right of what was wrong, to the restoring internally uh, to the way things ought to be. By the way, justice just means the way things ought to be. That as I'm being dealt with spiritually, that on this Jubilee year, God is saying that also extends and, and, and spreads and grows because I don't just want your heart being right. I, I, want, I want the society being right because ultimately that's where life is lived is not in a vacuum but with people. There's, there's racism going on at my church, new church that I'm at. And, um, and there was a, a woman that came in and, uh, and, and was refusing to see it. And as we di dialogued about this racism, um, and, and she finally was willing to recognize it, her response was, then I'm just going to try all the harder um, to pray for people's hearts to change. Because at the end of the day, um, that's that's the only place where, where this is going to be changed. Um, and I said to her, when the disciples realized that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked for money, they didn't say, wow, this really sucks. The early church has got a heart issue. Let's all have a prayer meeting. They addressed the dysfunctional system that was leading to that by creating another system called deacons, deaconesses, that has lasted 2,000 years, even till today. Um, but this idea that we abstract it, and here you've got this picture of the transcendence of God, the imminence of God. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus was born um, out in the field where there were shepherds and, and where this, this poor couple was, was giving birth and, and taking on responsibility for a dependent Savior that humbles himself in that way. There's the transcendence and the imminence, and they come together and it makes our faith not an abstract Greek one, but a very earthy, real, spiritual, deep, relational, social um, thing. I think the, the, the question throughout Scripture, it's not just in Genesis, but this is kind of the backdrop to all of the social sayings of God and then the prophets and then Jesus in the New Testament. When uh, God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? I think the implied answer here is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And I think as we go through Scripture, that's what God is always trying to communicate to us, that, hey, you actually are your brother's keeper. That's not disconnected from your relationship with me. It's very much bound up with it. And so why do I want to talk about these things and try and bring race or the other into the conversation? It's because I actually think in a very real way, 
it was always tied uh, to our discussions this way. The Good Samaritan, where Jesus brings in ethnicity, uh, brings in the other in a shocking way to talk about justice and love, that was in response to a question on how do I know that I'm saved? Do you know that? Most of Jesus' ethical parables were told in response to a theological question on salvation. So Jesus gets asked about, how do I go to know about heaven and hell? His answer is loving your neighbor. When we talk about Matthew 25, and Jesus is doing this incredible teaching that mirrors Isaiah 58, and he says, whatever you do for one of the least of these is what you do for me. Whatever you don't do for one of the least of these, you're not doing for me. Do you know that, that what preceded that parable was a question uh, on heaven and hell? Jesus actually said the king is going to take these people and send them to torment. The punishment for the people that, that didn't love the needy and therefore didn't love Jesus is that they go to hell. Um, I'm not trying to overblow the significance, but we need to reconnect that Jesus' parables on ethics were tied to questions on salvation. That what we separate were actually this, this kind of holistic amalgam for Jesus. And when we reconnect those things, our conversations are a lot easier to say, this issue that this person is experiencing, sexism or racism, this person who is looking out only for themselves, self-protective, and it doesn't look that sinister because they're just using the tools at their disposal, but in doing so, only thinking about advantaging themselves and never once thinking about the responsibility of privilege or advantage that they can come alongside, like Oscar Romero, to try and help other people or stand with them, that these things are not just random things that are out there ethically. Jesus is bringing all these into our conversation about our relationship with God. Obedience is tied to our knowledge of God. The prophet said when you're disobedient, it's because you've forgotten God. And they call people back to remembering God, which is therefore implying that they're going to be obedient. And obedience isn't some abstract spiritual thing. Obedience is treating the foreigner in a certain way. It's, it's, it's not neglecting justice. So these things are wrapped up, tied together. And so we have to have kind of a shared understanding of this. The first part is, I want to talk about this because I think it's a part of the gospel. The second part of why I want to talk about this is because we have to have a shared understanding of, of history. Uh, we have to have a shared understanding of reality if we're going to be able to, to reconcile or have a conversation. So the first thing here, and you might be familiar with it, it's just redlining. Redlining was systemic injustice perpetrated against people of color simply because they were people of color. And it led to the segregation of our cities. If you've ever wondered how our cities got their shape, it was when people were fleeing the South. There was no great migration uh, of African Americans out of the South. There were uh, refugees coming out of the South, fleeing terror. It's, it's, a, it's a really big difference. There weren't people that were bored with the South or were just going north like birds go north after the season changes. There was no migration. It was people that were experiencing terror in the South at the hands of, of our government and our government's institutions that went to other places to try to find safety. And where they went to, they were not received. Uh, we have race riots that we could talk about or get into. And so they had to live in certain areas that, that ended up becoming the, the only areas where people of color were allowed to buy property or allowed to live. <clears throat> and then when we came along with the Federal Housing Administration, if you ever want to know where that came from, it's real simple. Roosevelt brought about the Federal Housing Administration because he never wanted another Great Depression. He wanted you to have a 30-year loan, so as long as you make your payment, uh, nobody can come and take your house from you. Because before that time, the bank could come and demand all of what you owed at once. It was ultimately their house. So this whole idea of a 30-year fixed mortgage was to prevent this, this run on things where everybody gets flipped upside down. As long as I make my payments, I'm good. But how are we going to give these loans out? We don't want to give them to high-risk areas because, because then we're not going to get repaid on these loans. It would be bad debt. Well, let's go and evaluate communities and let's find the good communities that are green, the ones that are nominal, that are yellow, 
And then the ones that are high risk, and we'll, we'll call them red, and we get this phrase redlining. And one of the key things early on with the Federal Housing Administration to identify what a high risk uh, community was, if there are immigrants present or people of color present, it's a high risk neighborhood. So it's de facto red, which means de facto you can't get access to the same resources that everyone else does which means you have a poverty in that area, which affects the, the businesses that are created, that affects the people that, that are going to apply for those businesses, and you get this cycle that, that prevents people from being able to, to advance and move forward. This is Chicago. Um, not much changes once you bake something like this into the system, and it was systemic racism, not by some individuals in the South but by, by the, the institutions, our government, that created this, not just in Chicago, but in cities all around the country, um, all the way to the Bay Area, to Baltimore, anywhere you want to look. And that's a part of our history. Um, sundowner towns. I just moved from Central Oregon to Portland. Uh, my town, Bend, used to be a sundowner town. And sundowner town meant if you were Native American or oftentimes a Jew, in the case of, of our town, um, or African-American, you better not be caught on the streets after dark. And it was a way of saying, since we've told you that, um, we're not responsible for what happens to you. We don't want you here, we don't trust you here, and we feel safer after dark if you're just gone. So we're giving you advance notice that you don't have, from society, um, the, the, the rights to be here. And... Uh, and then we're not going to feel bad about what happens. But this happened all across America. Sundowner laws. Laws around communities about who could buy. You know, it was actually in the ethics handbook for real estate agents that they would not sell um, to a person of color in, in a white neighborhood. There was a time when that was actually in the ethics manual if you were a real estate agent. Um, don't let the, the sun set on you. This is a part of the fabric of our culture historically. This is a really interesting one for me because you know where this picture was taken? A church um, in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon uh, in the 20s had the highest per capita Ku Klux Klan membership of anywhere in the country. And you wouldn't think about it because it's just West Coast and you know, is that really where the race stuff happens? But just how much this was married to the, the civics of dominant culture Christianity. That church membership and clan membership would, would interface in, in this kind of a way. This is also Portland, Oregon. What is the story of your city? What's the story uh, of Beaver Falls? What, what, is, what has happened here that has shaped things the way that they're shaped? And it's not in the past. It's also current, Right? What is currently going on in different places that wants to keep uh, a narrative going that, that is a narrative that is comfortable to the dominant culture but does not show that there's any concern for the voice of others? Can you tell me what time it is? Someone in the front row. All right. I'm going to do this quick then. and We'll get just a couple questions and then. This is Christianity in America. Where is it most dominant? Where is it most dominant? Purple. South, where, where is the largest per capita Christianity in, in America? South. Uh, the most Bible-believing city in, in the country, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Do you know what ranks as the most uh, racist city in America? Birmingham, Alabama. Where does racial terror take place? Where, where, where Christianity is most dominant. What, what is the symbolism that was used for terror? I, I mean, I think there's generations that, that knew that there was a clan, knew that that was going on, might not have been a part of it, but did we ever really stop and go, what the hell is going on with the cross being used in this way of terror? Is that not what the Romans did? James Cone brought liberation theology, uh, theology to the black church and, and brought it in as a story of, of black America as well, uh, just like in Latin America. Listen to what he says. In the lynching era between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. 
Yet these Christians did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. You know, there was never, uh, until after the civil rights, never um, any lynching laws. They tried to bring federal lynching laws to Congress multiple times. It was never approved. How in the world do you not, as as the government, um, find the ability to, to have a law that says this is wrong? People in power, people of Christian faith, upheld um, a system that allowed for this kind of oppression of neighbor. And you wonder what Jesus would say, would it be a gentle parable about, about a man being beat up on the side of the road and a Samaritan helping him? Or would it be even spicier if Jesus came and said, let me talk to you about heaven and hell and what's going on in society. This is the Innocence Project. Um, Innocence Project out of Montgomery, Alabama. Brian Stevenson doing incredible work. Um, he is bringing lynching to the forefront of the national consciousness to try and set up a memorial every single place where someone was lynched. These jars have dirt from, um, they're trying to get a jar like this from every site where somebody was lynched. To be able to honor these people, to name this, um, to say this kind of terror act in society normally. The Boston Massacre, how many people died? It's like, I think it's 13. We call it a massacre. Um, we honor it in, in so many ways. Um, how come Brian Stevenson wants to ask we don't do the same with this? And so he's been doing a lot to bring this so that we have a shared history, understanding of what's going on, that we could come to reconciliation. Last slide, and I'll close with this. Um, I brought Adam Hoschild to the first Justice Conference. Um, he's a history professor out of Berkeley, not a Christian. And he wrote a book called King Leopold's Ghost on, on Africa and um, just empire in Africa in the 1800s and ultimately around how uh, King Leopold used the Congo as his own personal way of getting rich, becoming the most wealthy person in the world. Um, the, the other book he wrote was called Bury the Chains and it was on slavery. So I had him do a talk on King Leopold's Ghost in the day. And then at night to the whole conference, I had him do a talk on Bury the Chains. And he gives this fantastic talk. And then he ends and he gives a little Q&A. And the first question is from this guy. And it's one of those things where you get embarrassed to be a, a Christian. Um, because you're like, why, why did you just make us look like that? You know? um, so this guy asked this question to try and challenge this guy that's not claiming to be a Christian. He says, the last page of your book, you give empathy the award for having ended slavery. And you're robbing from Christians the honor that is due them for...